0: It ever comes up that we need to rename this podcast, we're going to rename it Intervention Soup. <laughs> Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. We are here for a bonus episode which is one of our Journal Club episode. Uh, I'm Matt Fox from Boston University, and I am here with Haley Bannock from the University of Buffalo. Welcome, Haley.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me back. No, that doesn't make sense.
0: <laughs> no, I think you're a permanent fixture. right? There's there's no having you back. In you're fact, stuck if you, with me. <laughs> in fact, if you, if you said you weren't coming back, that would be a much bigger problem.
1: Yes, given we're only two episodes in, so yes, that would be a bigger problem. But yes, I'm glad to be here today with you is what I meant to say
0: yeah you know it is a bit weird of course because while you say we're two episodes in that is true in terms of the way we plan to release these but actually we've recorded many more so i feel like we're like halfway through a season halfway through a year
1: yeah i think we are halfway through the year in terms of recordings yeah but people have to wait to find out what terrific things we've recorded so far
0: They absolutely do. So what we're gonna do is you may have heard our first bonus episode where we put up one of the uh, journal clubs that we have been doing. And we did an actual recording of the journal club that we did for the week of SCR, which was really an interview more than it was a traditional journal club. But what we plan to do for these is really pick a paper that is of interest to the two of us with a Methods Focus and just talk it through and and see what we think of it and try and get some insights and if you were part of the the preparation that we were doing for this particular podcast where we were doing online journal clubs when the when the pandemic first started an idea that Haley came up with which i was so pleased to be supportive of, you will know this paper already because we actually did this paper as part of one of those online journal clubs. The idea is not that we are going to repeat all of the papers necessarily that we've already done, but we just thought this was actually a a really good one. And the the paper is from the International Journal of Obesity in 2008. It's by Miguel Hernan and Sarah Taubman entitled, Does Obesity Shorten Life? The Importance of Well-Defined Interventions to Answer Causal Questions. And this is one that both Haley, and I are big fans of and so we thought it would be a, a nice opportunity to talk through some of the issues around the counterfactual model which we talked about in in episode two with, with Daniel Westreich, and to really think about some of the issues around consistency so we will talk about that one Haley before we do I'm curious how do you actually go about reading methods articles do you have an approach because I will just tell you up front I struggle to actually read a full I, I struggle with any paper particularly methods papers to get all the way through a methods paper from start to finish without checking my email at least 6 times, seeing what's on the internet, checking Twitter, and then I have to go back and kind of reread it. Do you have a do you have an approach for reading methods papers or do you just wing it
1: so i do have a bit of an approach i mean i share your issues about attention span a lot of the time i find being old school and printing papers helps me because i can turn off my monitor put my phone down for a little bit and actually focus i also share i think what you've talked about previously which is over highlighting I really enjoy highlighting, like with a, a highlighter on a paper, and so having it in front of me is very helpful for that.
0: It is nice to be around a, a fellow over highlighter.
1: Yes, and doing it in Adobe highlighting, it just is totally unsatisfying to me. I uh, just see, I'm
0: I'm okay with it.
1: Uh, I haven't adjusted yet. I, I'm still old school, but then. I end up with a bajillion papers on my desk all the time because I want to read papers and then I have printed copy. So it's not a perfect solution. So I, for myself, I find printing it off to be helpful. I also find reading it in small chunks to be helpful. I, I don't often get through something in a full shot. And knowing that, I often have to reread papers several times and you know, really sit for a little while and let it percolate through my brain because it's hard for me to pick up on everything but there's some people Miguel Hernan is one of them who are exceptionally gifted at writing mm-hmm. methods papers that are readable for many different audiences and so I think that picking papers by specific authors is also helpful there's other authors that are completely brilliant but I have a harder time getting through their papers and so it's such a pleasure and a treat when I get to read a paper by Miguel or Miguel and some co-authors because he's gifted in that way so I, those are all strategies
0: I use. And we, will, we won't name any names, but uh, I'm sure I know who you're talking about. I find that the thing that I love so much about methods papers are at least the ones that, you know, aren't so far over my head that I can't grasp them is that methods papers are something that you, you go back to and you get more out of the yeah. next time you read it, if it's a really good methods paper, because it's often hard to truly understand all of it until you really had a chance to think about it or to apply it or there's something that you come back to after new experiences and you can sort of see new things so it's one of the things I really love about reading methods papers
1: yeah and and I think for me when I'm reading a methods paper I'm obviously interested in what they're talking about but I'm mostly interested in how it's going to apply to my own work or work that I'm involved in and that doesn't come to me right away if I you know I, i Thinking through a problem, and I think, oh, I, I saw this paper once, or oh, I, you know, or I remember this idea from a paper I read. That's when the methods paper really hits home for me, is when I can sort of connect those dots between what they're talking about and the work that I'm doing.
0: Yeah, I, I, I share that. I absolutely share that. All right, so why don't we, why don't we jump into this paper? So I, I do want to just give the, the full citation in case anybody wants to read along. We'll put it in the notes, but it's the International Journal of Obesity, 2008, volume. 32, page S8 to S14. And again, Hernan and Taubman are the authors, and the title is Does Obesity Shorten Life? The Importance of Well-Defined Interventions to Answer Causal Question. And the article starts off, I mean, I, I guess I would say, Haley, tell me if you agree that really what this paper is about is the consistency assumption in trying to get at causal inference. Would you Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I agree. And, and I think All the examples that they go through are really trying to demonstrate the importance of having a well-defined intervention.
0: And I would agree with that. And so the way that the authors get into this idea is essentially they start off with an anecdote, I would say, or or a story, which I've got to say draws me in as a, as a reader, because I know it's a methods paper. I know it's going to be complex, even if it's, you know, this one is not particularly heavy formula paper or anything like that, but I know the ideas are going to be complex and having a, a story to ground it and actually is quite nice. And so the, the idea here is that imagine that you've got a king who very, you know, nice king, but he's got a problem with mortality in his kingdom related to obesity. And he wants to know what he should do about this particular problem. And so he gathers up some of his, his most trusted uh, epidemiologic advisors, who happen to be uh, also authors on this paper, and says to them, look, I'll give you unlimited time, money, and resources. Do whatever studies you need to do in order to be able to answer the question for me. and that." question is how much death is attributable to obesity my kingdom the investigators then go out and they essentially design three different studies kind of unbeknownst to each other so let's say there's three different people you the reader and then the two authors and essentially what you do is you go out and design three totally independent of each other randomized trials in the first randomized trial the idea is that the first investigator says I'm going to have an intervention in which I force people to start an intense exercise program of one hour of strenuous physical activity per day and I'm going to compare that to people who continue along as usual in terms of their exercise and then we'll we'll follow them forward and we'll see what happens in terms of mortality 30 years later because we've got unlimited time money and resources because you know we're in epidemiology land where everything is perfect and easy Then the the second person says, "Okay, I'm going to have a study in which I randomize people to a comprehensive dietary intervention in which we limit intake of calories and carbohydrates. And we compare that to people who who keep their their diet as usual and again, follow people forward for 30 years or so and see what happens and make that comparison. And then the third one is uh, the third investigator has an invention where she does both the exercise program, though less intense than the first one and a dietary intervention again, less comprehensive than the first one. And again, compare those to people who continue normal diet and activity, and we follow those people forward for 30 years and we see what the change is in the mortality. And when the three studies do this, they come to different conclusions. So the first one, the one that is just exercise, comes to the conclusion that there are 100,000 annual deaths that could be prevented by implementing the physical activity regimen. The second one, which is the dietary comes to the conclusion that you could save 50,000 annual deaths by implementing the dietary plan. And the third one, which is the diet and exercise comes to the conclusion that you could save 120,000 annual deaths by implementing this program. So let me just stop there Haley and get your sense. Do you like the way that this is set up?
1: I do, because knowing where the article is going, this makes the point very clearly, spoiler alert, obesity in and of itself is not an intervention, right? The intervention is the exercise or the diet or the combination of those two, and those have separate effects on your mortality or your mortality uh, estimate than any of them combined, I suppose, right? So I I do really like how they're setting this up. And I think it parallels very nicely something we've talked about on previous episode and more episodes to come about this target trial framework and thinking about, what is the target trial that corresponds with the question I want to answer? And so this article, I think, predates some of Miguel Hernan's discussion about the target trial framework, but it actually is setting it up in a very nice way to help think about it.
0: Yeah, this was 2008. And so I do think it does proceed a fair bit of that work. But I agree with you. And I like it, too. I mean, so obviously, I didn't go through the introduction, which sort of lays out what this is going to be about. But I, I agree with you, what it's pointing to is this idea that, you know, how many papers do you read where people are trying to study the effects and you can't see me but I'm making those little air quote things effects of obesity and I think it's making the point at least here that maybe it's not making the point yet that these are three different interventions and therefore you know they're they're different things but that these aren't really the effects of obesity in order to study obesity in any kind of intervention study we have to think about how we're going to change obesity that's not the effect necessarily of obesity that is the effect of these particular interventions.
1: Yes, and I think that as an obesity researcher, this is a fine distinction that is not often recognized in the literature because there are so many papers, mine included, that talk about the effect of obesity. And that is different than asking a question about the effect of interventions to change someone's body weight status from more obese to normal weight or however you want to think about it. The change there,
0: and here's where I think it gets more concrete. The next thing that happens in this article is they go to the king and they present this data, and and the king says, "Tell me how many XX deaths are attributable to obesity." And they just kind of look at each other and say, "Well, uh, I can't really answer that question." And the king says, "What? I gave you all this money and time and unlimited resources. I have to do something about this. I need a policy that's going to allow us to reduce the mortality in the kingdom related to obesity." And they say, "Ah, well, that's a different question." Question. The question you're now asking is, what's the best thing to do about this particular problem? From there, the answer is is quite clear. You want to reduce mortality the most, you go with the combined intervention, which reduced mortality by 120,000 deaths per year. So it sort of makes it clear, we're often in this position of thinking, what's the effect of something? When in fact, the most relevant question from the standpoint of the person who is actually going to use this information to improve public health is not, what is the effect? but What is the interventions effect and what's the best approach for mitigating the problem?
1: Yeah, and that sort of raises this meta-level question in my head about the purpose of epidemiology. Is the only purpose of our work to inform interventions? Are there other reasons why we want to understand the first question that King is asking, which is what are the number of deaths attributable to obesity, right? So not all of our work necessarily has to inform public policy, does it?
0: No, I don't think that it does, but I do think, so I'm, I'm foreshadowing conversation that will air later where we talk to Maria Glymour about this kind of thing, that no, I don't think that all questions need to immediately inform policy, but I do think they need to be building towards interventions or policies that will ultimately improve the health of populations, you know, mitigate morbidity and mortality, because otherwise, why are we doing it?
1: Right. I guess that that's the distinction there, is that there is a place and a role for both kinds of research depending on the question that you're most interested in knowing the answer to. But ultimately, our goal is to improve the health of our population, which I suppose happens through interventions.
0: Let me leave that question aside for uh, one more part that I want to describe of this. And then let's come back to it because I think, you know, they sort of touch on exactly the issue that you're raising in terms of what kinds of questions might want to be asking. But where things go from here in the article is that say, okay, now there's this other country where there is a president and that president is interested in answering the exact same question but feels like i don't have unlimited time money and resources to put towards this problem i gotta do something right now isn't there some way we can answer the same question that they answered over in the kingdom without having to wait 30 years and and using all this time to do all these intervention follow-up studies and he says let's instead take all of the data from the last 30 years on people within the the country and let's Pretend we have perfect information on annual BMI, date of death, detailed information on lifestyle like smoking, diet, and physical activity, and other risk factors for mortality like hypertension and diabetes. And the king then he offers a reward to the first person who correctly estimates the excess number of deaths attributable to obesity in the country. And then a week later, he gets a letter from a data analyst from a prestigious university saying the answer is 150,000 annual deaths are attributable to obesity, and we will assume that all of the experts in the land agree that they use the best available statistical methods and they had very good data. So the president, of course, is very happy about this. And he announces that we are going to have a national program that is going to reduce obesity. And I think here is where we really get this distinction between how much of something is attributable to some cause and how much that outcome would change if we were to actually do something about it. Because, you know, we can sort of vaguely think about death being attributable to obesity vaguely, although we can get into the specifics of that in a minute, but i specify what i'm gonna do about it there's really no answer to the question of what would i expect the benefits to be of said program to improve obesity
1: yeah no i i definitely agree with that perspective i just think that there is value in understanding and documenting that observational relationship even if you don't necessarily know what is the intervention going to be to fix the problem
0: I say more about that then. Why? What is the information that I get out of it? Because just to jump ahead in the article, they talk about this and where the article is going next is saying, well, you could imagine that I don't know what the intervention is that gets me from, you know, X number of deaths to X number of deaths minus 150,000. But theoretically, what this data is telling me is that there is such an intervention and presumably it is an average of a whole bunch of different things that got me to, the obesity in the first place or things that I need to do to remove that obesity. But what if, for example, and this is obviously it's a hypothetical, it's not meant to be real, but hypothetically, what if all of the obesity and the mortality, therefore related to the obesity is caused by a genetic factor, in which case there's really nothing I can do about it, at least in the current moment. So what's the value then in estimating that 150,000 deaths and saying that it is an effect of the obesity?
1: Well, I think part of the issue is that if you want to talk about interventions and spending money on doing a trial and and developing an intervention, you need to know that what you are trying to do is going to There needs to be a relationship for you to influence via your intervention. So if you don't do the studies to show that obesity is associated with increased mortality, you would have no basis for implementing an exercise intervention to reduce mortality via obesity because you wouldn't know that that relationship exists. Is that making sense?
0: It absolutely does. And I I certainly agree with you. And I think my take on that would be essentially what you're saying is you're, you're building the evidence base for the intervention study, not the not the policy, but the intervention study. But if in fact, you know, it is truly a genetic cause of the obesity, which is leading to the mortality, then my intervention trial, which is going to be an exercise trial, is going to show probably no benefit.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think this is where the idea of science as building blocks or epidemiology as building blocks really resonates with me, where you need this sort of, I'll call it descriptive or association type research to see whether there are relationships between your variables of interest. Then you move on to potentially intervention type research or a trial, let's say, where you're testing out, is it diet, is it exercise, is it a combination of those two factors that will make a difference? And then if you find something that does make a difference and you you think it could be scaled up and implemented at a population level or there's some policy that corresponds to it, that's the, the next level in my mind of what you would build on, but it sort of needs to go in sequence. You couldn't just jump to a policy without knowing which intervention worked. You wouldn't want to try an intervention if you didn't think there was a relationship between your exposure and your outcome.
0: Yep. So now, you know, this is a case where we're talking about something where we could, in fact, build that evidence based on the observational data. Then we could do the trial and see what happens. But, you know, not everything can we do the trials of. We can't really do randomized trials of smoking. And so there, we're entirely reliant on the observational data to guide the policy decision that we're going to make. Does it matter more in those cases? Or would you say, I'm conceptualizing this wrong, and in fact, you know, the intervention we're never going to randomize people to smoking what we're going to do is we're going to randomize people to smoking cessation yeah And that's really what the intervention is.
1: Right, so I think it's a combination of a couple of things. I think it's exactly what you said. You you could not randomize people to begin smoking cigarettes, but you can do a trial where you're randomizing smoking cessation. And lots of researchers have done those types of studies. So I think that that is one thing to consider. If you cannot randomize people to your exposure because it's potentially harmful, can you conceptualize your exposure in a different way where it's the removal of that harmful factor that could make a difference? and the second thing I think is is again bringing up this idea of the target trial that we keep mentioning. When you have observational data and you have a very clearly defined exposure, let's say smoking, you could measure it very well, and and you know there was limited misclassification, etc. You know, do you smoke cigarettes every day or not? Attaching some you know number of let's say a pack a day. You know, so there's a very well defined intervention that corresponds to the question you're asking, and so you can use this target trial framework to sort of emulate what a randomized trial would look like, which I think could be helped to inform policy. So when an actual trial is not possible, I I do really see how that framework could be very helpful for researchers and policymakers.
0: And so what we're getting at here, obviously, is, as we said, is the consistency assumption in in causal inference. And they go on to then kind of more formally define the consistency assumption. I don't think we need to go through the, the math so much as to just sort of say that the consistency assumption is essentially the idea that the hypothetical outcome that, I would experience under whatever the particular exposure is, has to be the same as what actually happens in the real world when I get that exposure. And if those two are not equal, then I have no way to estimate causal effects. And when we talk about something like obesity, given that it isn't clear what the cause of the obesity is or the distribution of those causes within a population, there's no real way to say what the causal effect is of obesity if it isn't well defined. And obesity is something that isn't well-defined. It's a result of a number of different exposure effects that that lead to that obesity. I mean, is there anything you would add or change in the way that I describe that? Because I know that that is obviously central to what the article is about.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree with what you've described. Basically, when I hear the word consistency, my brain automatically thinks well-defined intervention. So that's really where I view the consistency assumption in my mind is, is this intervention that we are, or this exposure that we are discussing, is it well-defined? And exactly what you're saying, obesity is not well-defined as an intervention because it's not an intervention. It's a, a state of your body. And there are many different ways, like the article goes through with, you could affect someone's BMI or affect their obesity status, right? So diet and exercise, a combination. But then the article goes through these very well-known examples that are often used. You know, if you chopped off someone's legs or arms, you know, their body weight would go down, therefore their BMI would go down and they would be, quote, less obese. You know, starvation diets are a way to reduce your obesity status or your BMI. Smoking actually interferes with your appetite. And so often smokers have a lower body weight than non-smokers, you wouldn't want to, do an intervention for smoking because there's all these other downsides to it. They they also, you know, talk about gastric bypass as an intervention. But all of these are interventions that affect your obesity status and obesity in and of itself is not a well-defined intervention. Gastric bypass is a very well-defined intervention. Did you have the surgery or did you not have the surgery? That is your intervention. But that's why it talks in this article about obesity as a consistency problem, because it is not a well-defined, it is not a consistent uh, intervention in and of itself. So that's really what I would add related to obesity, particular to what you, you said.
0: You know, it's interesting that you brought up the gastric bypass being a well-defined intervention because of course I've seen discussions where actually you could posit that gastric bypass might not actually be a well-defined consistent intervention because if the surgeon who does the gastric bypass surgery determines the likelihood of the change in obesity, then your outcome could depend not just on whether or not you got the gastric bypass, but on which surgeon you actually got. And therefore the predictions that I would make about what a policy for, you know, you implementing gastric bypass surgery on a larger scale would be different depending on quality of the surgeons that I had available.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would hope that most general surgeons who do bariatric surgery are are similarly trained. I think there probably is an effect. I know there's different types of gastric bypass surgery. And so I assume the type of gastric bypass surgery might have an effect, but it's the same as, you know, a few minutes ago, I talked about smoking being a well-defined intervention. I know probably there's listeners that are thinking, she's crazy. There's no way smoking is a well-defined intervention, but it really, it's about how you specify it. You have to specify how many packs per day. Do you have, the been smoking for 20 years, right? You can specify these, I guess, qualifiers that make it well defined, right? And and just like when you're defining anything in a research context, right? You have to be very careful about how you specify exactly what you're talking about. And so I think the same would be true of gastric bypass surgery or or smoking or, or any variable you're talking about.
0: Yep, as Tim Lash beat into my head, it's all about dose duration and induction period. Uh, so, okay, so you said you would hope, of course, that that, that is well-defined, The gastro bypass surgery is well-defined. And I think the reason why I wanted to kind of push that point is the question that I asked the group when we did this as a, an online version was, this is a really helpful exercise to me for clarifying what the consistency assumption is all about. But at the end of the day, like, is this just academic navel-gazing? And I think that were you the person who made me define what navel gazing was? No,
1: I do know what navel gazing
0: is. Somebody made me define what navel gazing was and I defined it as, whoa, (laughs) universe is like totally infinite. You know, these sort of questions that are, you know have no bearing on the real world but are just sort of interesting to think about. Is that what we're doing here?
1: no i don't think that at all i think actually there are some parts of academia and as an epidemiologist where that is true and maybe on face value when you see the consistency assumption defined as a bunch of y's and a's and ones and zeros you might think that but this is actually really important for policy making and for doing trials and For understanding how we can actually improve the health of the population, right? Is is knowing specifically what is going to improve their health. And so I think part of the difficulty about the consistency assumption and some other parts of causal inference as well is that it's really easy to get bogged down in formulas and sort of the minutiae without stepping back and thinking about the bigger picture that this actually has an effect. And that's why people write about it, because they understand that if we are going to create interventions to, let's say, reduce annual mortality, we need to know what those interventions should specifically look like. And that is consistency. So when
0: I teach this to students, the reaction that I get is, I would call it a journey towards acceptance. The pushback is exactly what I what I sort of said, which is the yeah, but like, I, I have to exist in the real world, what I have to do real data analysis, you know, what do you want me to what do you want me to do about this? And I think that, you know, talking about the target trial framework is is very helpful there. But I also sort of get the, you know, that's fine for you guys in in academia, but, you know, I don't have all of this freedom like you do. And, you know, I have a a boss who's going to tell me to estimate this regression model and interpret it. And then I've got journals that are telling me to interpret it. Can't say it's causal. I can only say it's an association, but then everybody knows I'm trying to say that it's causal. I mean, do you get those kind of pushbacks as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, as an obesity researcher, I absolutely get a lot of that pushback and times where somebody wants me to say, this is a cause. And sometimes you can't say it. And sometimes you have to be the one who is knowledgeable about what you can and can't say from your study results. I mean, this is a frequent criticism by epidemiologists of, of what's reported about their studies. What you write as a conclusion of your paper is not necessarily and often is not the headline of the newspaper article that's covering your paper right those are two different things and your role as a scientist is to appropriately communicate the results of what you found in your research and you have some control but limited control about how other people are going to interpret those results.
0: And so you raised the idea at the beginning that essentially we're, we don't always ask questions that are designed to give us the policy question answer right away. We're often really just trying to get at, is there, is there an effect so that we can start to build that base? I guess my question though is, do you think that we spend way too much time focused on those earlier questions and then we go ahead and interpret them as if they were the later questions? I guess what I, what I mean by that is, you know, if I read a lot of, don't read nearly as much obviously of the obesity literature as you do but my sense is most of the resulting work that I read of of obesity studies are really doing that first one they're sort of they're getting at the idea of is there a relationship I can't say what component is or what intervention is going to reduce the problem I'm just trying to say that there is a problem and yet when I read the you know, discussion, they advocate for particular approaches to dealing with the problem that would suggest that we believe these are well-defined causal effects. Is that your experience?
1: Yes, that's my experience, but it's not limited to the obesity literature.
0: No, no, not at all.
1: I, I think that, you know, we're talking about that as an example right now, but but I don't think it's limited to that. Nope. I do think that, let's say in the past year, we've seen kind of a movement, a scientific crusade against null hypothesis significance testing and the use of p-values, you know, and, and I think that this is sort of the next issue that we should try to focus on, if, if I could choose myself, what that issue should be, is understanding the difference between an observational effect, something that mimics a target trial versus an actual intervention that you can specify. I think those are different things.
0: No, and I think you, you raised the, the point. I, I was only going with the obesity example because it's what was brought up here, but I mean, you could think about cholesterol, hypertension, all kinds of things that are really the results of other things that we need to be thinking about. And we would need to think through the hypothetical interventions that we were gonna do you know to me what i take away from this isn't that okay consistency 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 that's what i need to be focused on to me it's exactly what you said in the beginning is this builds the rationale for why we want to be moving our observational epi research towards the target trial framework towards thinking through okay you know now we've done the earlier studies that say we know that there is an issue with obesity Now we want to think through what's the the hypothetical trial that I would do if I could, or call it smoking or call it hypertension, call it whatever you want. What's the hypothetical intervention that I would do if I could? And what do I think the likely impact of that is? To give you another example, I I read studies from students of ours that want to, that look at the effects of say green space on health outcomes. Now I, I am totally down with the idea that there are likely to be causal relationships, but just because I can identify an association in a data set between the amount of green space in your neighborhood and some health outcome does not tell me what the effect of whatever it is we might do about it. So is the intervention to add more green space, which means I I may need to relocate some people. Is the intervention moving people from communities with low green space to high green space, which is going to have a very different effect. So it seems to me this is really pushing us forward. You know, it isn't necessarily that this paper has the answers in it.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that that raises a, a good point that I think is sometimes lost when people talk about this particular article. I find it a little bit uh, dogmatic, a little bit black and white in terms of, is it well-defined or not? I know that Steve Cole, um, just after this paper, I think it was in 2009, published a paper on consistency and talked about how, okay, if you're not in a setting, I, I hope I'm getting this right. So I'm not embarrassing myself or Steve, but you know, if If you are in a setting where you do not have a well-defined intervention, basically the assumption that you're making is that the combined effect of the interventions you can imagine on your exposure are all sort of acting in concert with each other. And and so you're kind of looking at this aggregate level mishmash, as I said on an earlier podcast, intervention soup.
0: Intervention soup. Um,
1: You know, your mishmash that is of all the possible interventions and how that affects your exposure. That is the assumption you are making. And I think that that is an important point. Certainly, I've used it as a justification in in some of my own research on obesity. I understand that this is not an easy thing to estimate the causal effect of obesity. But in this research, I am assuming the intervention is some aggregate of all of the possible interventions on obesity. So I think that that's a, a nuanced point that sometimes gets a bit lost. In this particular paper, Hernan and Taubman, when we're talking about... About consistency. It's not quite as black and white as we are presenting it.
0: I would absolutely agree with that. And I would also say that if it ever comes up that we need to rename this podcast, we're going to rename it Intervention Soup. <laughs> that is going to be the name of the, the podcast. Okay, so let me, let me move on to one last point that they make in the paper, which is is the argument I think that they really make behind why it is that you wouldn't necessarily want to answer the the question that we talked about in the beginning of just, is there some effect that is some aggregate of a bunch of different possible interventions that I could do? And to, to explain that they get into the other two assumptions that you need for causal inference. So we talked about the consistency assumption. The other two are the exchangeability assumption, so we have to have no confounding and selection bias, really. And then we also have to have positivity, meaning there has to be a non-zero probability of getting the, you know, the exposed or unexposed condition within levels of everything that really matters. And let's just let's just ignore the positivity one for the moment. Although I, I will say, by the way, I, I and I think you agree with me that I believe there should be a fourth condition, which is no no measurement error.
1: Yeah, I absolutely Believe that that was that was something I've argued previously because it's an overlooked problem.
0: All right, we need to, we need to write something about this because I have talked to people about it and they say that it is subsumed within the others. It's not. But I actually think that you and I should campaign for it to be added.
1: I fully support this campaign because you can't talk about having consistency and having positivity and, and having no unmeasured confounding when everything is measured with error. I mean, or you've measured something totally wrong. It, it just doesn't make sense on face value. So, yes, I'm I'm fired up and ready to have this campaign with you.
0: Awesome. Okay. So let's focus then on the exchangeability condition, okay. the, the the essentially what I'll call the no confounding condition, but it really sort of encompasses, I think, selection bias in a lot of ways. The idea being that if you don't have a well-defined intervention and really your intervention is the effect of a whole bunch of the true underlying causes that you would actually be intervening upon, then it's going to be pretty much impossible to actually control all the confounding because there are so many different arrows going into to those different components that make up the exposure that you're actually looking at itself you would never really be able to do that and therefore you couldn't actually answer the question how do you react to that particular argument
1: so i do agree with that argument i understand it from a academic logical perspective i you know i, I I get, it's hard to figure out how you control for confounding if you have this sort of fuzzy version of your exposure that is not well-defined. However, with that said, I think for many of us in our own particular research interests, we know that there are certain confounders that we're basically going to include in almost every model that we do, right? So um, age, race, ethnicity, smoking status, you know, there are certain variables that I think account in each of our areas for the majority of confounding. So I don't necessarily, I, I would be interested to know in real life, how much of a difference that argument would make. That's what I'm saying about, I understand the academic argument, but I'm not sure I buy the real world implications of that. Because if you're, we're always going to be in a situation where we have some kind of uncontrolled or missing variable that we haven't perfectly identified or measured, right? So let's go back to a genetic factor for some. We haven't identified the genetic factors that influence all of the exposures we're interested in. So that would always be missing from what confounders I control for. Does that mean that my analysis is not valid? No, probably not, unless it has some tremendous effect, which we don't usually see in genetic variables. So I'm not sure I fully buy into that argument that they're laying out in the article.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly... I think a lot of people think that uncontrolled confounding is the biggest problem that we have in epidemiology. I, you and I both don't agree on no, that no being our biggest problem, but it is certainly there are some very high profile instances you could point to where all the observational epidemiology pointed in one direction. And then when we actually did the randomized trials, they told us a different answer. But, you know, I, are those common? I don't know. The other point I think is how often does this happen in practice? And, you know, what's really the solution that we're talking about here to this problem of... the consistency assumption is we're talking about moving towards well-defined interventions and you know you're still going to have to deal with the confounding problems there even if it's a a better approach so you know it might improve things it might lessen the number of confounders you need to, to deal with and have measured and measured well but you don't get out of the problem i find that part correct but still less persuasive that it is one of the things that's really holding us back
1: Yeah, I mean, when you think about something, let's say you implement in a trial a very rigid, well-controlled dietary intervention, you're still not going to be able to control, let's say, for how someone metabolizes the diet that you are implementing and how that might affect your outcome. You you likely are not going to control for something like that. So even when you have a well-defined intervention, you don't necessarily eliminate confounding full stop. And so I think it's a problem we all need to consider in our research, regardless of whether or not you have consistency or, or regardless of your study design, I guess.
0: Yep. So I think those are the main points from the article are there any any other issues that that came up that you want to raise before we before we finish up?
1: Yeah, I mean I think overall uh, an important takeaway in addition to what we've talked about is that sometimes fancy methods can't solve your problem Mm. and sometimes you have to think much more basic and on a much broader scale than just can i use something like g-estimation to statisticalize my way out of this problem
0: Ooh, statisticalize yes
1: (laughs) i you know i just invented that word in case you weren't wondering
0: okay so now now the podcast is going to be called intervention soup colon statisticalize
1: it's hard to say so we'll have to practice it but but i think you know aside from me inventing a word that that is a really important takeaway from this this paper that it's important to think through your research question and your research design and i think that that is something we as a field perhaps need to consider more and don't give enough attention to at this point
0: No, I think you're totally right about that. I think we, you know, we spend so much of our time in teaching, particularly for doctoral students, teaching them the latest and most cutting edge methods, statistical or or study design. And we, you know, as you and I have, have talked about so many times that we don't often spend enough time on thinking about really how do we ask a good study question? How do we design a good study to answer it? Um, We jump sort of right into the have data, can't analyze, therefore it must be meaningful. And I I think we do that at our own peril. Yeah,
1: no, I, I completely agree with that.
0: Well, I got to say that we're still during the coronavirus times and therefore I am hiding out in my basement to, to do this podcast. It is incredibly hot and sweaty down here and gross. <laughs> and yet I will say without question, this was the best hour of my day. So it is so much fun to, to do these with you and, and I hope that we get a chance to do more of them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I also really enjoyed it. And I hope those of you listening enjoyed it as much as we do. And also, as you may have noticed, Matt is a little bit active on Twitter. I'm trying to build it up, but I'm nowhere at Matt's level. But once you listen to this, please do engage and comment. It's hard for us because, you know, we're talking to each other right now and making comments to each other. But we would love to hear what you have to say on this article. If you have any additional thoughts or totally disagree with what we've said or the use of the words just Please let us know um, via Twitter because we would love to hear from you.
0: Yeah, if you, one of the best things you could do to support this podcast is to let other people know about it. And one of the best ways to do that is actually, you know, tweet out something about the particular episode if you liked it. Uh, a quote from it something that struck you anything that that starts conversation would be really helpful to us so with that we will we'll end this episode but we got more coming i'm so excited for the lineup of people that we've been able to have conversations with that are coming remember this podcast comes out the main episodes will come out on the 15th of the month and then uh, whenever we have these kind of journal club bonus episodes we'll put those out on the first of the month thanks for listening